And Laney, thanks so much for taking some time to talk to me today. Um, when I saw your posting, when I first saw it from you, Mark, I, I thought, you know, there really hasn't been an in-depth discussion uh, of de-risking other than we know it's in the reform bill that was signed into law. We know it, the GAO is studying it, but looking at it from an uh, analytical perspective and trying to get some uh, ideas about drivers. So I want to say, first off, I think everybody needs to read this. The title, it's out of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta's Policy Hub, Heat versus Light, Fact-Checking the Debate over De-Risking. Um, and, you know, I think everybody should take a look at this. This is certainly an issue that the AML community writ large cares about, whether they're law enforcement, regulators, or the private sector. So let me just uh, open it up first and say, uh, can you give me a sense of the, the summary and the, and the key, key findings of your report? Sure, thanks, John, and I appreciate the opportunity and certainly welcome feedback from you and, and um, from others that read the reader report. Our contact information is there. Um, so the, the project really started with this, with an observation that for me personally, what has always been interesting about the, the AML regime is a sort of steady expansion over time, really since the, since the 90, right, since 89. Um, and and starting in the sort of mid to 2010s or so, and I know the conversation started a little bit earlier than that, um, you started to hear a lot more around this term de-risking. Um, and it sort of caught me as an academic by surprise. I hadn't heard it before. And then all of a sudden it became a pretty dominant narrative within discussions around AML. And so um, my personal interest started in there, sort of thinking about where this was coming from and why this matters. Um, and sort of fast forward, doing some work. Elaine and I have conversations about it as well. And it really becomes, the question for us, I think, was why is de-risking, of all the many topics, why is de-risking seem, why does it seem to be so important? Um, this is at the same time, of course, that FATF was trying to lead a charge on taking effectiveness seriously. Um, and it seemed in a way that the, the de-risking critique, if you want to think of it that way, was more effective in pushing back against AML uh, or pushing for reform of AML than even critiques that the, that the system was ineffective. Um, and so that was sort of interesting, just intellectually, what is it about the de-risking thing that's so, that's so impactful? Um, and then from there, it just became a matter of tracking. So really starting with what is this debate, where does it come from, um, and what is it about? So the paper really tries, it starts with that. Where does the debate come from? Who's driving it? What information do we have about it? Almost a sociology of knowledge, right? right? What information, what do we know about de-risking um, if, it's, if it's so important in, in shaping AML reform? Um, and we use as sort of a foil in the paper an article from The Economist, uh, as you know, that says, you know, this is this major trend where banks are cutting off categories of, of, cat, of customers rather than making individual decisions. And, um, and it's, it could have these tremendously perverse and, and harmful outcomes in that it actually pushes everything back into the shadows and AML could be making money laundering worse rather than, than, than uh, trying to address it. So, and what we find is, first of all, de-risking is a problem. 
right? The, the, the inability of certain groups to access the financial system is a serious problem when, when those groups face that. Um, but it's probably not been as, as widespread a problem as was forecasted in those earlier conversations. Um, and so, um, and then this, the other, I think, major point is, it's hard to know. I think it's, I would go farther to say it's hard to defend um, and say that to the degree that de-risking is happening, it is a result of AML. There are lots of drivers. It's a nuanced sort of decision. Oftentimes it's a business decision, um, but it is, I think, inaccurate to say AML causes de-risking. Uh, it's sim as simple as that. And so what we try to do, what we hope to do with the article here is just sort of spur a more nuanced conversation and point out that we need a lot better data on almost all aspects of this debate around de-risking. So we welcome the chance to talk about it with you. So, you know, so Eleni, working off of what Mark just said, um, I've always felt, and I think it's been borne out by the groups that we've been part of, that there are several drivers, right? Profit's a driver, no question about it. So banks, financial institutions have to make decisions regarding uh, onboarding and whether or not to exit relationships based on that. That's, so that's, that's clearly part of it. And sometimes that's the only driver. The other part of it is the regulatory side. And I would uh, advocate, argue whatever uh, word you'd like to use that the regulators in the states and, and perhaps, perhaps in other jurisdictions as well are uh, constantly sort of shifting the goalposts in terms of regulatory expectations. And I think in part that drives the decision on profit. So you look at something and you say, okay, let's say charities, for example, even though we know de-risking references, the gaming industry, MSBs, you know, correspondent banking, all sorts of things. <clears throat> you look and you just say, you know, we'd like to do this because it's societally uh, valued, right? But we believe that we, meaning the AML officer or the business line, if we have to add all these bells and whistles to the account relationship, you know, maybe we can get away with doing it. Maybe we do some of that because banks, I think in general, are pretty good with their communities, but they make final decisions sometimes based on that. So I think that's part of it. As Mark said, it's not the AML, the AML infrastructure is not the whole driver. It's part of it because it's the risk part of it, right? So I'm curious, uh, as you were doing the research with Mark, um, did you, were you able to look at something which I would argue is pretty hard to do you looked at enforcement actions, eh, not a ton of those, so I don't think that's a driver. But as we know, and you know, um, there's a lot of MRAs, matters requiring attention, matters requiring uh, immediate attention in the U.S., and I'm, and I'm sure similar you know, criticisms in others that don't rise to the level of high fines and penalties, but do present issues, and that could also potentially be a driver of de-risking or exiting relationships. Is, is that something you were able to, to look at and find as well? Um, yeah, you're making a very important point when you, you, when you state that actually when we do look at enforcement actions and fines, the evidence is scant. So I think that that's an important, that's an important aspect because that was not necessarily the expectation uh, seven years ago um, when, when the, at least we argue the uh, the debate exploded. Right. Um, um, so, so I think that's an important point. Uh, the other uh, aspect, though, is that it is indeed quite difficult to pinpoint exactly what happens between the regulate within the regulatory community and when the regulators actually interact with the financial institutions. Right. 
yes, all those documents are public, but a lot of it is in the way in which an examination is, is uh, performed, um, the way conversations are ongoing. And there, um, we don't have the, we don't have the evidence, we don't have the ethnographic work, we don't have the data to know more about how those conversations are shifting. It is the case that in, in public fora, um, the importance of getting the balance right and the proportionality right has been stressed again and again. And regulators do not disagree with that in principle. The extent to which that actually translates into examinations, however, uh, I think um, we, we don't have evidence to, to show that that isn't in the case. So it is, it is a very important aspect of this. The, um, the other point that I would, uh, would like to make based on your remarks is that when it comes to the different types of customers that banks have, for some, it is easier, no doubt, to pinpoint AML as a specifically important driver than it is for others. So when you mention charities, um, is it AML or is it compliance more broadly? Uh, the weight of AML is probably more significant there than it is for other customers where the compliance cost more broadly following the global financial crisis did rise and where perhaps delimiting what is AML and what isn't AML with those de-risking decisions becomes more difficult. Yeah, you know, Mark, um, when we first uh, approached this subject and, and we talked offline, I told you that back in 2005, after the Riggs Bank case, um, it had been the case for a while that money transmitters and money service businesses were put in a high risk bucket and many banks sort of stayed away and that sort of uh, became a major issue for the trade associations that represented money transmitters went to the OCC, went to the agencies and said, hey, look, what do we need to do? And obviously they have regulatory requirements. So if you have those, that, that sort of helps with the decisioning. Um, but when we, the, the broader community met under the World Bank umbrella back in 2014, 2015, uh, we were trying to deal with de-risking writ large, right? And so we had a full day meeting and you guys have uh, identified where we brought in regulators, law enforcement, the entities that are impacted. And we sort of decided in that all day meeting that we couldn't boil the ocean, right? So we decided that we would focus only on charities because while the others had arguable concerns, again, correspondent banking more recently, but you know, gaming and MSBs, we felt that there was at least consensus that um, the humanitarian and charity world needed more exposure, if you will, more understanding by the private sector. So, so that's sort of how we, we did it. So a long-winded long way of saying the other part of this issue that I'm interested in your take on is that the Charity and Security Network, uh, obviously the advocacy group that you mentioned in your report that was put together in, in large part to deal with this, one of the things they argue with the, the AML community is um, de-risking isn't just exiting or not onboarding. Sometimes it's an expansion of requirements to just wire transfer money. And uh, I'll end on this one because it still resonates with me seven years later. There was a gentleman from um, Syrian Relief, and I think Mark, you and I talked about this on the phone a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and he was talking about this and saying, you know, we're, we're still getting funds, but the delays are such that if we can't get water, utilities and medical supplies in the time that we need it, people die, right? And so you know, hearing that and hearing what the other folks said, we said, maybe we could figure out what can we do 
Uh, and so I think part of, the, part of the struggle was you're not going to be able to say all charities are not high risk because in the past, some of them are. So you got to deal with that, right? To Lainey's point, I mean, there's a risk decision you got to make. But what can we do to better understand one another? So I, I think you, you referred to the report that we did with ACAMS and the World Bank. That was what that was designed to do. We've got to clear up the problem. But what did you find in terms of that, just in terms of charities and obviously there's different charities, there are different types, getting funds, but making it more difficult versus no access at all? Yeah, I, so this is probably the most contentious part of this whole discussion. Um, and if, I, if you'll allow to me to be a, a bit provocative, it's because you have sort of two, two camps increasingly claiming to be the pure angels, right? Um, on one hand, the AML folks saying, you know, look, we're out here fighting terrorism and fighting money laundering and fighting bad things and, and the human trafficking that comes out of conflict zones and all these things, right? Uh, which is true uh, to some degree. On the other hand, you have the MPOs, Hispanic calls and charities often um, saying, no, we're the ones that are doing more good. And so you're slowing us down and you're costing lives, right? As you, as you cite. Um, and that becomes a very difficult space in which to negotiate reasonable solution when probably both sides have something reasonable to say about the problem. Um, I, you know, I recently had a conversation with someone who pointed out that for, for, many, for many charities, if they were a business and not a charity, we would rank them as very high risk because sure. of where they're involved, because of what they're trying to do, because of the nature of their activity. But the charity label sort of makes it feel like they should have a bit of a pass maybe. Um, but at the same time, I know that hardcore AML people seem to expect charities who often run on shoestring budgets to have multi-billion dollar compliance systems of, of global banks. And that's not reasonable. Um, that would run them out of business and that's not a good thing. So, um, so I, I'm, I'm really actually intrigued to hear that story, John, because uh, it helps maybe explain a little bit why charities become such a focus because sort of at that meeting, this, this influential group that you were part of right. sort of decided, no, this, this needs to be the real focus because it's true that MSBs drop out of the conversation to some degree. Right. Um, they, they, they started, I think you're right. And we, we cite, I mean, your conversation goes earlier, but we cite work early on where Jennifer uh, Chosky Calvis says MSBs um, sort of raises this issue. Um, and, but they sort of drop out of the conversation that becomes a focus on MPOs. I think um, where that conversation stands is, to me, it's, it's hard to know what the answer is. It is, it, I think it comes down to finding solutions has been the case for right. lots of other areas of de-risking. And I think some of the, the impacts that we haven't seen that were predicted are the result of solutions that were found. I don't know that that's been found in the MPO case. Um, it is another case where the data that we have, I think, is insufficient. Um, and, and we have, you know, I know that Sue Eckert and others have done some work on this, some research on this. Um, but we, again, back to the problem of, is this an AML issue? Um, if we reform, or put it this way, if we were to reform the AML regime in some way, would that solve the problem? Um, and I'm not sure that that's the case. Um, you know, as, as you brought up and Lady mentioned, Regulators are still, if regulators are going to whisper into banks' ears that they want a list of MPOs no matter what, then that's going to send a clear signal that they're risky. Delaney, I don't know if you want to follow yeah, up. Yeah, Delaney, uh, what your thoughts? 
Yeah, it, it's also one of those issues that I think is it will remain on the sidelines, while being extremely important for the de-risking debate, is also on the sidelines of it when it comes to where the de-risking debate has gone uh, for many compliance officers, which is know your customer's customer. Right. And it's an area where you can actually, where the, the, the customer can de-risk their own customers and, and therefore the, the rest of the, um, the relationship is saved. Uh, charities, NPOs will tell you they can more often than not, not de-risk their own clients. That is the whole point of their presence in, uh, in many of the areas in which they operate. So the tools with which we are thinking about the de-risking debate more broadly don't translate very well uh, don't in, 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 the, um, in, this, uh, in this NPO conversation, which is, also, um, which is also problematic. So I wonder if, um, you know, if using the same language is actually now not, not perhaps taking us away from the NPO problems that are still there, which are much more political problems than compliance problems. Yeah, you know, the, um, and again, I'm only recently past couple of years understanding NPOs better than I ever did. And a couple of things that strike me, a couple of anecdotes. One is when we first spoke to the Charity and Security Network, they said, how come when you close our accounts, you don't tell us why? And I think as Eleni and Mark clearly know, in the US, we can't tip you off as to why we've closed your account. So whatever account closures that happen, it's typically a one line or two line statement from the bank. You don't fit our business model, we're closing your account. And they better understood that. Then we, we would ask them, are you guys regulated at all? You know, uh, high level, very, very superficial question. And they said, well, of course, we're, uh, the IRS regulates us, uh, states regulate. So once we got a better understanding of the due diligence that most, we never say all, uh, charities do, that helps the bankers make decisions that are more based on the business model versus the risk model. So I think we help that. I think, now, uh, I will tell you that the, the folks at that organization reached out to Rick Small and I just a couple of months ago and said they want to get the group back. And we said, well, why? Didn't we, we didn't say we solved this, but didn't we improve this? Yeah, but there's still problems. So, you know, I don't know that we'll ever, quote, solve that. But I thought that those the information that we shared was, was instructive. And then the other thing I'll say, and I want to hear you guys' thoughts, the agencies in the U.S. have issued interagency statements and are making changes to the FFIEC manual because we pushed them. We pushed them that your manual said high risk, no ability to mitigate. Your, you, you know, the Treasury Department in terrorist financing says, hey, charities are high risk. And then when you talk to Treasury, the financial side, they said, how come you guys aren't banking charities, you know? So uh, I think better understanding each other improves that. And if that comes out of this debate, I think there's value there. But clearly, I would argue that the point that this is relevant to AML, not the main driver, is because the agencies have issued interagency statements in the past couple of years referencing that in the hopes that banks will look different, or financial institutions will look differently at uh, these account holders. I mean, does that make sense? I know you guys have looked at that. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And I think, I mean, I, I think I have a, I've been accused of being cynical before, uh, but I think there are some, there are some signs of, 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 of some reasons to be optimistic in this, that where there has been a debate, there was a problem identified 
you know, bad of special, special recommendation eight is maybe the best example, um, good and bad. And that is, you know, it, it was misused, misapplied, poorly, poorly derived from the beginning. Um, there's a big blow up over it. Um, I think some, I do think some of the ramifications we see um, now stem from that, but it was addressed in ways that, that um, had never really been done before. Um, and so I think there's, and there are other cases where conversations like you're talking about, John, um, are happening to try to solve specific problems. And we know this works, right? We've seen it with the embassy bank problems. Um, we've seen others where you have to craft really sector specific responses right. um, to this and say, you know, what is the nature of the problem? Where's the misunderstanding? You're still gonna run into a problem, I think with MPOs where banks are profit-driven institutions. Um, MPOs are not immensely profitable right. accounts, right? And so, you know, how, how you overcome that um, is something for banks and MPOs to figure out. That's a conversation to be had, but the premise has to be there. These are not gonna boost, you know, maybe become sort of, you know, the good works of a bank, but uh, these are not gonna be the sort of profit boosting accounts for banks as a general rule. And so you have to overcome that somehow, but these conversations around, well, well how are you regulated and how, do we make, and how do banks make decisions? How can NPOs give them the information they need um, or how can banks help NPOs get the information that the banks need? Those are the sorts of conversations that should be happening. So I get the band back together again, John, continue the conversations. What I say. Uh, Eleni, let me ask you, you also did some data reviews of correspondent banking. And while we're focusing on, obviously today we're talking about charities, uh, the correspondent bank issue, that was part of what was in the Economist article, obviously. And also, um, you know, we've seen actually since the Wolf, Wolfsburg group was put together, as well as FATF, the correspondent banking is considered a major high risk space. But you guys looked at some, some data points there in terms of uh, uh, percentage drops. Talk a little bit about that. That chart in there is really interesting. I'd like to hear your thoughts. Um, yes, so uh, first of all, we weren't necessarily expecting the chart to look the way that, that it did. I mean, the, I think there's been so much talk about correspondent banking being under stress that we were actually um, expecting, uh, expecting to, see, to see significant drops. So, um, and and that, that doesn't pan out. So I think this is the most, um, for us, because the focus has been on banks and the big banks in particular, this has been the, I think, I think this is the sort of highlight almost of the, of the report uh, in saying that if we're going to be taking these consequences of the risking seriously, this is not necessarily the area that we need to, uh, that we need to look at. Um, and we've also found, and this is not, um, this is not something that we mentioned explicitly in, uh, in the report, uh, but we also find that there, found that there are sort of several ways in which the large banks in particular are able to mitigate the issues around de-risking and, and you know, prob problems with accessing data in some of their correspondent banks or the sort of cascade effects that, some, that sometimes are also uh, in place here because they have the sophistication, they have the resources to train their correspondent uh, banking uh, counterparts, for example. So uh, what, it, what the data does highlight is that if we, again, the importance of nuance, if we only look at the overall numbers, we miss out that actually, even though correspondent banking has not suffered as a whole, the issue is very important for specific type of areas. 
And then it has become customary to basically refer to those lonely islands in the Caribbean and the Pacific. Uh, and for those jurisdictions, the issue, the effects are real. And we should also not take away from that uh, when, we are, um, when we are looking at the role of the big banks and correspondent banking more broadly. You know, Mark, um, one of the things I don't take issue with you guys, I take issue with FATF and the bank agencies in the States, they talk about the importance of the risk-based approach. Would be great if it actually existed, but like you, I'm a cynic. I don't think it exists. I think, you know, you do get a lot of uh, risk pushback from examiners, even FATF. So I think they keep pointing to that as this proves that we are open to you know, dealing one-off with some of these entities. And they also say, FATF says whole categories of customers. I push back on that too. I don't think that's happening uh, in total with all the banks. Banks are making decisions based on individual entities. I don't think they're just saying, oh, now some have said no MSBs in the past, right? But, uh, but going back to the original point, the risk-based approach, great in theory, great if it was in practice, I, Again, I don't get the sense, doing this a long time, I don't get the sense that that is in fact what's, what's happening. And I think that's part of the drivers of any decision in terms of onboarding or exiting is, yeah, banks, they're in the business of risk. That's what they do, right? And so they should be able to mitigate. But if the regulator doesn't think you've mitigated sufficiently, doesn't mean an enforcement, you know, fine but it could mean some criticism down the line. So what's your take on the whole risk-based approach? Again, great theory, it's, all, it's almost excelsior. You know, we, we wanna reach the highest goals, but I, I just don't see it. I, I personally, I agree with that. And I don't, I would be surprised to hear anybody say anything other than that. Um, I think the risk-based approach, yes, makes a ton of sense. It's, it's like you, it's what you think, I tell my students when I teach about this, it's what you think, like what like you like to think regulation is made this way, right? Um, uh, it makes a ton of sense in theory. I, in practice, it has not been there. Uh, and I think there's good research, including, you know, on those, on those data that Peter Reuter and Jonas Rivera are doing and others, right, to sort of point out that we're not anywhere close to having the kind of information that you need to do to, to take this risk-based approach. Um, so I think that's not there. I, you know, the, I want to go back to your point for a second, John, on going back to the chart and this notion that banks aren't doing whole categories, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, because as you know, that has been sort of the classic definition of, of this. Um, and I, I, I don't know the answer to that, I, but we know the effect is that, right? And so right. that's sort of, um, to some degree it's academic, although to me, it, I think it's kind of interesting. Um, that the, the result is that you see, as Eleni pointed out, you know, large swaths of the Caribbean, Oceania being cut out of the system. Absolutely. Yeah. And if, if that is happening so much that you see patterns like that, then whatever decision-making algorithm they're using within banks effectively has a multiplier effect for geographical location. Right? Makes sense. Yeah. It seems to be the case. And so you see that, but that gets back to this point that we try to make at the end of the, at the report that there is not a de-risking problem, right? There are de-risking problems. Um, and that, you know, what you deal with in one island nation that is perceived to be um, risky or high risk is different than what you might see in another, that's different than a, a MSB, that's different than an MPO, right? And so those, 
really those sort of sectoral, if you want to think of them that way, um, conversations are the ones that need to be happening, it seems to me. You know, it's interesting, uh, Mark and Eleni, um, I, I do, pre-pandemic, do a lot of presentations to different categories of banks, or sometimes small community banks. And so I, I can remember just a couple of years after the World Bank and ACAMS got together with, uh, to produce the report, we were on a panel, I was moderating a panel of regulators and the person from the Fed, and I, it wasn't Fed DC, but one of the Fed banks, in his presentation said to the audience, it was mainly community banks, he said, understand that when a large bank de-risks an entity and you think it's valuable to take it, you may not have the ability to manage that risk. So A, embracing that it's going on, and B, telling the community banks, be careful. Now, again, it's, it's not in a manual, it's not in an interagency statement, but I think it's that type of messaging that sort of contributes to the broader view, right or wrong, that AML is a driver, not, again, I would, I would agree with you guys, it's not the main driver, but a driver. So I, I thought that was important to reference because they've clearly done that. So I, I think that's relevant to the risk-based approach and what, can you manage, can you mitigate, all that kind of stuff. And you know, the other part of the reform bill, by the way, that I think doesn't get the same, same play as the GAO study on de-risking is examiner training, right? Mm -hmm. So I would argue examiners are trained. I've done some of that myself. Mark, maybe you have as well. But they're not trained on sort of the what's the rationale for the Bank Secrecy Act? You know, it's more about, you know, crossing T's, dot and I's and that kind of thing, which is their job. So I'd stop not being completely critical, I'd be a little critical. But uh, so I think that the training part of that becomes pretty important. So that leads me to another question. I know I'm keeping you guys longer than I planned to, but this has been fun. Uh, Eleni, you did something in the report that I thought was interesting. You looked at social media. Now, uh, in terms of trying to determine sort of the debate scope and all of that, and the, the a couple of questions I would have for you would be, I think that's interesting. It's really interesting that you were able to do that and, and uh, people should read the report. The numbers sort of bear out the, the number of times you saw references to this. Um, but obviously we're in a new world, right? Social media in 2014 is vastly different than it is in 2021. Sadly, it's probably worse, you know, but, um, you looked at Twitter, which as we all know, isn't reality because we're all, we're all on Twitter, as we all know that's true. Um, did you look at, you may have done this, I may have missed it. Did you look at LinkedIn and any references there when you were doing your research? And then give us a sense of what your research showed in general in terms of social media. Um, we we didn't um, look look at LinkedIn, but I, I would like to pass on the um, the, um, the sort of metaphorical microphone to, to Mark, who did the vast majority of the uh, social media. Oh, okay. No, no, that's no problem at all. So, yeah, I mean, I think well, yeah, and Eleni is the one you should talk to about the profession because I think I think your point on the on the regulators and understanding that to go back to that for a second, John, is really yeah. important. Eleni's work here on the profession of of AML is really spectacular, and I would I would love to see her sort of dig into the into the um, the regulator stuff. But we were told and have seen that regulators are notoriously tight-lipped people, um, um, and. Uh, they face their own scrutiny from oversight. Right? We, Eleni and I had this conversation recently. Um, the one regulator I've been able to talk to really said, Elizabeth Warren basically scares the bejesus out of me. And so I'm going to ask for, I'm going to be, you know, you know 
pretty ruthless in my examinations because I don't want to get hauled in front of Congress, right? Absolutely. And so everybody is sort of in fear, which is not a great regulatory system, right? But everybody's in fear of the person that has oversight over them and is sort of defensively going about their jobs. And that's how we end up in, in some of this mess. But to the social media question, I think, you know, it's, that started out sort of as a way just to track, um, like, can we see this conversation showing up? And as being interested in when this discourse starts to take over and having followed, um, sort of jumped on the, you know, hashtags around compliance and hashtag email, um, that I was sort of just interested to see whether that showed up in those numbers. And, sure. and you know, it's in the report, it does. You see this big spike. Um, none of that is definitive. I, you know, you have to take all that with a grain of salt in part because just the number of Twitter users has gone up. So all else equal, you would expect right. that, that spike, that slope to go up. But um, you see a clear increase and you see spikes around certain events um, that show there. I, we did not cover LinkedIn. I think it would be interesting um, to, to see. Um, what that showed us though, again, is there is this moment where de-risking, as Lenny said earlier, sort of explodes. Mm -hmm. Recognizing that the conversation goes back farther than that at a sort of simmer. And then all of a sudden in around 2014, there is just this massive increase um, that exceeds the increase in, in Twitter users, I think. And so um, that really became sort of the, well, let's dig in right there, right? Um, and see what's happening. Um, what is it happening in 2014? And that leads us to, you know, some of the reports that you were involved in, the world, others from the World Bank, right. um, where the discussion really starts to kick off. So that's sort of the main way that we use uh, the social media analysis. Well, I'm going to get your your final. Just, final uh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I would just like to, to add here that I think what what the issue is, if we compare the sort of the world of Twitter and the world of LinkedIn, uh, which I think for a next stage of our analysis would be interesting to see, because then we are talking about the policy community and the practitioner community of AML. And, and there you really can get into the detail of the reform process in the United States, what's going, what's going on at FATF, what's going on at the sort of European Union level, and you can have quite a good understanding of those discussions. What we did here is really at what point did we start talking to our colleagues who do not do IML and they understood the risking the way we understood the risking and not you know, in the very many ways in which the term can be used in even in the sort of the world of finance. And this is, I think, what the analysis here captures. This is what the social media analysis uh, captures in the, uh, in the report. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's a good point because on LinkedIn, as you know, it's, it's more, obviously more professional uh, uh, dialogue that happens there. So I think you'll see uh, some back and forth that, uh, you know, I think policy arguments and that sort of thing. I just want to, I want to read from the last line of your report and then get your final thoughts. The reform we see underway now arguably reflects the de-risking discussion as its peak, which lacks nuance, which again, I agree. Policy responses need a more granular approach to distinguishing between de-risking and structural factors that affect financial inclusion and uneven access to the financial system. And of course, you said financial exclusion, whatever its causes should concern everybody because it's got economic and security and social justice impacts. Um, next steps, what, what, what do we think beyond this? Because when you do a report like this, the anticipation is we want more from you guys because this is a really, this is a really good, uh, it's not even entree, it's more than that. It's obviously very, it, it's very detailed. So again, what, what do we think next steps might be, Mark? What else would you be looking for besides what we've already talked about, about getting data from different spots? What else would, would it be 
you know, after a year or two of AML reform in the US, but obviously you want to see what's going on globally, what would be your thoughts? You mean in terms of what, what sort of research we would like to do or where research, do we think? Yeah, what else would you want to see that we continue to try to progress toward some additional element of success, I guess? Well, I think in terms of policy, I, you know, probably the biggest point I would go back to is this, that we have de-risking problems or financial exclusion problems, right. um, not a de-risking problem. Um, and so, you know, and I know Louis de Coker has always said, you know, this is about the, the denial of financial services, the de-risking term is not useful. And I sort of agree with that, um, especially to the degree that de-risking has come to be understood to some degree as meaning related to AML. Um, I think starting to understand that there are these, there are different problems um, that, are have, that, are, that are affecting different groups um, and then coming up with more tailored solutions to that. I think history suggests that's probably the best way to go about this. And so I think some of those sectoral uh, conversations are really what needs to be happening and, and getting out of the, and I, I, think we're, I think we're doing this by the way. Right. Um, I think there have been others that have said, okay, that wasn't the way we thought, that didn't work out the way we thought it was going to, that's probably good overall. And so, but now we need to move forward and say, well, but there is still a real problem, right? There are still island countries that occasionally have been nearly entirely excluded. There are populations who are facing challenges. Um, that includes though, sort of what options are there? And Elaine is better suited to talk about this, right? So, you know, if MSBs are being de-risked, are there solutions? It's not good for the MSBs necessarily, but are there some other there are market solutions out there now that might provide people access to money and financial services that aren't that MSBs in the way that we've traditionally thought about? So some of those conversations, conversations would be uh, sort of exciting to continue. You know, Eleni, I think one of the things that, uh, as Mark just alluded to, technology can be used to improve access. I did a podcast with uh, a friend of mine from Beneficial State Bank out in uh, Washington State, and that bank was actually started by Tom Steyer, and their only mission is to deal with uh, NPOs. And it's interesting, you get a chance to look at that. So, so some banks have done that. There's actually been, I've also interviewed folks who are using technology. Uh, Finclusive is a company that I remember. So, so I think to Mark's point, I think that makes sense. What, what, are, you, what are your thoughts going forward since you've been also in the, in the AML space? Uh, so technology for sure. I mean, I, I think both Mark and I are um, uh, perhaps, you know, uh, despite ourselves, uh, curious to see what will happen in, in the fat of debates on unintended consequences, because, you know, we are policy nerds at heart. Uh, sorry, Mark. Um, and, um, and to see the extent to which, whether those conversations actually drive the debate forward or was seen as sort of a concluding um, uh, point in those particular discussions, I'm not, I'm not sure about what is going on uh, there yet. Uh, we are also very interested in the effects in the particular uh, jurisdictions that are, that are affected. Uh, our, our work here did start with an interest in the Caribbean, and, and that is not something that we are, uh, that we are about to, uh, to abandon, but that um, you know, inevitably you need, you need ethnographic work here as well as, um, as, well as uh, the sort of uh, raw data that we've been able to, uh, to assemble so far. The key the role of regulators uh, is, is key. You have sat 
on numerous panels and in the audience many, many times in your career where regulators are, are, uh, are present. And they often speak, but many, many times they sit, they listen, they take it all in, they absorb. Um, and we, we don't always know um, whether they are in agreement with what is being said, whether they are in disagreement with what is being said, and how these, you know, how their thoughts and these discussions actually translate into not the regulation, not the, not the, um, not the law, but the practice of regulation, the practice of examination. And this is where training, with, this is where, you know, what happens in those areas is especially important because the discourse used, the language used in, in, these, in these settings um, is, is, it can make a big difference into not notions of liability, but certainly notions of risk management. Because let's not forget, banks are good at managing risk, or at least better than many. <laughs> and uh, and um, so I, I, I'm also a cynic, but I'm not willing to give up on the idea uh, quite yet. Um, couldn't have said it better. That's, that's an excellent uh, way to conclude this. Heat versus light, fact-checking the debate over de-risking, Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta's policy hub from July 2021. Eleni and Mark, thanks so much for your time and your insight. Looking forward to further conversations on this, and hopefully we'll start to see additional improvements in the space, because at the end of the day, it's, it's about inclusion as best we can do it and access and if we can figure out ways of doing that, and to everybody's point, to be able to keep risk hold it at abeyance, um, I think that that would help everybody societally as well as economically. So thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks, John. Appreciate it.